This is a podcast from thebuglepodcast.com. The Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers, and welcome to issue 225 of The Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world, for beginning Monday, the 25th of February, 2013, with me, Andy Zaltzman, live in the certifiably historic city of London, where people have been doing, building and banging on about stuff for literally ages, and from the island voted greatest island in the world by things that look like half-eaten chicken legs magazine, Manhattan, <laughs> it's... The man who is likely as anyone to star in the title role of the not particularly forthcoming movie Arnold the Malfunctioning Toaster and the Slightly Singed Bagel, particularly as Marlon Brando is so tragically dead these days. It's John Oliver! <laughs> Hello, Andy! Hello, Buglers! I'm a heavy pencil for that movie, Andy. <laughs> a heavy pencil. Uh, Andy, I was a guest on uh, Jimmy Fallon's show this week, and sitting in with The Roots, the house band for the entire show, was the seminal... 90s R&B singer, singer and the pioneer of New Jack Swing, Keith Sweat. Now, <laughs> Mr Sweat and I were never supposed to have our lives overlap in any way, Andy. I think that's probably demonstrably clear. I have literally nothing in common with Keith Sweat. He is more sexually confident than I'm confident in anything. For instance, I'm pretty confident that the capital of Portugal is Lisbon, Andy, but I'm not as confident in that fact as Keith Sweat is in his firm belief that he is reigning mayor of Bone Town. There are many remarkable things about Keith Sweat, Andy. One is that he actually wrote the song Cause tonight, baby, I wanna get freaky with you. Uh, which is a classic, and uh, classic. the other is that his name is actually Keith Sweat. <laughs> he was born Keith Douglas Sweat, and if you name your child Keith Sweat, Andy, just accept that you are pretty much forcing him to be an R&B singer. <laughs> that, or a professional wrestler whose character is an R&B singer. <laughs> <laughs> the point is, if you stood outside our two dressing rooms on Wednesday, Andy, and you saw those two names... John Oliver and Keith Sweat. I think you'd be well within your rights to ask, what the f*** kind of programme are these two appearing on? (laughs) Also, just in reference to last week, I know we had uh, some fun reading out some of the Iron Sheik's tweets last week, can we? (laughs) He's a man with uh, a real skill for pithy obscenities. And I was looking at his Twitter feed last night and I stumbled upon one particularly magnificent missive. Uh, He tweeted yesterday... Chris Brown win the Oscar for best, beat the shit out of his girlfriend. I hope he die. <laughs> now, one thing you can definitely say about the Iron Sheik, Andy, is that you always know where you stand. <laughs> he is no fan of the concept of subtext. <laughs> so this is uh, Bugle 225. Coincidentally, uh, five is uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu's highest ever break in snooker. Tutu. Five. Amazingly, <laughs> that was the first and only time he ever played the game. Uh, and when, uh. when from his break-off shot, five reds went in separate pockets, <laughs> giving him five points. He took it as a sign from God H. Christ, the uh, middle name is a family one, apparently, and devoted himself to the church. 225, also the ratings out of ten given by Stalin, Roosevelt and Churchill to each other's wives at their impromptu Miss World competition at the Yalta Conference. And also, uh, the number of squares on a Scrabble board. 225 squares, John, and not a single one offering quadruple points for rude words. Shame on you, Scrabble. Yeah. Shame Um, on you. 
Live in the now, Scrabble. See what? You just hate success. <laughs> and Sweary Scrabble, Andy, is... Look, if they if they just had the confidence in their game, they would know that it could sustain being dominated by Sweary Scrabble. <laughs> uh, this is uh, for the week beginning Monday, the 25th of February, which means, uh, John, it's 350 years uh, since... In 1663, the London diarist Samuel Pepys wrote the following entry yeah. in his famous diary. Oh, yeah. Today I woke up and then I had breakfast, which was egg and bread and sausage, and then I went to the loo. And after that, I went to see my friend Pete, but he was dead of the plague. So I saw Mike instead, and he was fine. And we played with his toy cart, and then his mum cooked us fish fingers, and I went home and found a pencil. At dinner, I had meat and vegetable, but I can't remember what vegetable, although the meat was brown. After that, I looked at a wall, which was nice, and then thought about why trees always have erections. And then I went to bed. Tomorrow, I will change my name. Tomorrow, I will be called Samuel Thunderdick. <laughs> 350 years ago on Monday oh really what an elegant diarist he was <laughs> even back then as always the section bugle is going straight in the bin this week a London quiz in which you can win uh, the DNA of Samuel Pepys uh, if you could answer all the questions uh, that are in the bin this week uh, including this one what are London cabbies still required by law to carry in the boot of their cab? Is it A, a sawn-off longbow? That's a rule that dates back to the 15th century when cab drivers were viewed as London's first line of defence in the event of a French invasion. Was it B, a bale of hay? This dates back to when cabs were drawn by horses instead of their modern predecessor, internal combustion engines, traces of which will almost certainly be found in unrealistically cheap meat products in 120 years' time. Cabbies still have to carry a bale of hay um, for any cab nags to snack on. Uh, also, they used to have to carry it in case their passengers got frisky in the back of the cab after a classic London Saturday night out in the 19th century and wanted something to romp in that was more comfortable than the lead seats. Or was it C, they still have to carry a plaster cast of Queen Victoria's butt? The Queen's <laughs> arse was used as a measure by cabbies from the 1840s until her tragic death of natural causes in 1901. If a cab claimed it could seat six, the cabbie had to show it could accommodate six Queen Victoria's butts using the royal measure butt. New casts were issued every three years as the Queen's royal posteriors grew sizably with age until eventually a two-person cab was wider than most London roads, <laughs> leading to the development of the dual carriageway. Also, uh, the first use of the phrase, does my bum look big in this, is thought to have been uttered by a cab driver checking out the space in the back of a new economy taxi. <laughs> a, B or C? Any ideas what the answer is, John? Uh, is it D, Andy, a predilection <laughs> towards conversational racism? <laughs> well, there is that too. Actually, the answer is, in fact, B. Yeah. They are still, by law, oh. required to carry a bale of hay. Oh. Very few of them do. And that's someone's just a slippery slope from that to uh, racism and assaulting their passengers. <laughs> Top story this week! What time is it? Hold on, let me check my watch. Wait, someone's stolen my watch! Oh, I get it. It's crime time! <laughs> and we're starting this episode with a Bugle crime roundup because it has been a good week for getting away with crimes, Andy. So bad luck, Buglers, if you didn't have the foresight to try and commit any over the last seven days. But, uh, let's start. <laughs> that, does sound, that does sound like you're going in hard on the Pistorius case, John. No, 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 no. No, I'm going in soft on the Pistorius right, yeah. thing, Andy, in that I was planning on not mentioning all right. it at all. Because before we get into the uh, the crime section, which doesn't deal with the Pistorius case, it has yeah. proved yet again, John, how efficient trial by media is 
yes. as a form of justice because much quicker much, with the Pistorius case we already had an instant verdict which was definitely innocence then within hours appeals process definitely guilty and then over <laughs> subsequent days another appeal and it's now probably innocent so you know that's that that is trial by that is trial by it's it's going to take week months probably years to get through the courts John and we've already had three different verdicts in a week it's streamlined justice Andy. As you know, as as people could even, couldn't even have dreamt of. That is the future. It, and when you compare it with the uh, the Vicky Price case here, that uh, some buglers might be aware of, where Chris Hune, the uh, former cabinet minister, uh, pleaded guilty to getting his wife to take uh, a speeding offence uh, for him on his license. Uh, and uh, but his wife, uh, the, the case went through court, and the jury was discharged this week, and a retrial ordered because they sent some questions to the judge that showed that they were basically didn't have a f***ing clue what was going on. <laughs> These questions basically included questions like, can I decide she's guilty if I think she's got a shifty face? My mate Ian <laughs> reckons she's done it. Can I use that as evidence? I've seen pundits on the telly predict the out- outcome of sporting events by gut feeling. If that's allowed there, can I do it in a court case? And if we can't decide by discussion, should we do eeny, meeny, miny, mo, or a game of scissors, paper, stone? And if so, should it be best of three, best of five, or a simple one-off? So there you go, John. Bad week for trial by jury, good week for trial by media. Your witness. <laughs> well, let's start our crime roundup in Belgium, Andy. Belgium was the scene of a spectacular crime this week, which thankfully did not involve a creepy old man locking people in his basement and sexually abusing them for decades. So they must have been relieved about that, the Belgians, Andy, because anything less horrific as a crime than a creepy dungeon man has to go into the books as a big win for the Waffle Wizards. Uh, Instead, Belgium was the scene of a spectacular diamond robbery. Apparently, eight masked gunmen took less than five minutes to pull off one of the biggest diamond heists in recent years, stealing precious stones worth about $50 million from the hold of a plane bound for Switzerland. And yes, $50 million to Belgians, Andy. That is a lot of waffles. (laughs) In fact, I believe that is how it was reported on the news there. Good evening, fellow Belgians. We have breaking news, which is not chocolate-related. <laughs> a specula- spectacular diamond heist has taken place at Brussels Airport, where police say thieves made off with precious stones worth upwards of 70 million waffles. <laughs> waffles that will now remain uneaten. Their sweet goodness unaccented with cream and berries and a choice of syrups. This is a sad day for waffles, and is therefore a sad day for Belgians. <laughs> Hold your waffle close tonight. <laughs> fellow Belgians and tell it how much you love it. In other Belgian news, waffles are still delicious. So let us eat waffles and be merry. God bless waffles. God bless Jean-Claude Van Damme and God bless Belgium and God bless waffles again. Good night. I'm I'm pretty sure that's how it was reported, Andy. I just don't know how else they'd explain it to Belgians and still have it make sense to them. Well, it is, as you say, an incredible story. This gang... Drove through a hole in the airport's perimeter fence, then heisted the living shit out of a security van, hyper-heisting £30 million worth of rocks, whilst uh, the security van driver was distracted, um, queuing up for a plate of waffles. Now, it's uh, just (laughs) inevitable, John, if you take valuable goods through Belgium. That that kind of thing is going to happen, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Police are searching now for eight uh, masked gunmen, uh, and they're also searching for some chocolate sauce and whipped cream. (laughs) (laughs) So apparently these armed robbers were dressed in police uniforms, 
broke through this hole they'd made in the security fence, uh, had a van and a fake police car, drove straight across the runway to a Swiss passenger plane uh, where staff uh, from a security firm had just finished unloading the diamonds. They flashed machine guns, but no shots were fired as they took 120 parcels from the plane's hold, getting away at high speed through that hole in the fence. Uh, The van was then found later uh, burnt out just outside Brussels. And the only possible response to that, Andy, is, wow, (laughs) that is awesome. (laughs) Because for some reason, everyone loves a diamond robbery, Andy. (laughs) There's just... There's something so romantically authentic about it. We've become so used to money being stolen through white-collar crime nowadays, insider training or Ponzi schemes or dodgy high-frequency trades of derivatives that the idea of people actually going to the effort of putting on a costume, travelling to steal a physical diamond, it's incredibly appealing. You root for them, Andy. They're gentlemen criminals. (laughs) You just assume that they dress well and that they plan the heist by standing around looking at scale models of the site, drinking single malt whiskey, smelling incredible and making wisecracks at each other. <laughs> it's a diamond robbery feels like a victimless crime even when it isn't. If if you can imagine George Clooney doing something, it just can't be that bad, Andy. <laughs> he's too handsome for whatever he's doing to be criminal. It's just it's just that's just a fact. Yeah, I don't know if anyone who's seen the film Syriana would necessarily agree with that. But... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if criminal's the right word. It was certainly pretty damn tedious. But um, <laughs> so as you say, those gems were on their way to... Any guesses, Buglers? Yes, Switzerland. Oh, uh, the Swiss. Yeah. The Swiss, well, Ironic twist on the traditional timeline of stealing valuable stuff. Maybe it was a satirical heist. I guess we'll just have to see if any of those jewels end up being distributed around Jewish families in Germany. Um, <laughs> of course... You know, these days, you immediately think when something like this happens, that's probably a stunt for a TV reality show. But this, as you say, was a genuine old-school diamond heist, and um, there must have been some consolation for the security van people as they stared at the machine guns pointed in their faces, contemplating the prospect of a extremely rapid and noisy death, to think, ah, well, this is a bit awkward now, but they're definitely going to make a film of this. Absolutely, yeah. definitely. I wonder who's going to play me. <laughs> Probably, if I get shot, it's going to be a fat guy with a trustable face. If I if I get away alive without being shot, just any fat guy. Awesome. Hollywood, here I come. I just... I love a diamond heist, Andy. I remember when... You remember back in 2000, British detectives prevented that diamond robbery at the oh, Millennium yeah. Dome, where they were planning to steal, I think, £350 million worth of diamonds that were on show by breaking in with a bulldozer before getting away on speedboats. <laughs> I remember being so disappointed that they didn't succeed. It feels like diamonds are basically made to be stolen. Why else would we assign such arbitrarily high value to them? If... If, if it's sufficiently imaginative and it doesn't hurt anyone, I think diamond robbery should essentially be legal. And this wasn't even the most audacious diamond heist in the news this week, Andy, because Prime Minister David Cameron was in India on a three-day visit to drum up trade and investments and was forced to address a little giant diamond snafu that took place between our two nations in the past. More specifically... 
the 105-carat Koh-i-Noor diamond, uh, which was taken from India in the 19th century, given to Queen Victoria and set in the royal crown. It was a pretty audacious criminal move from the British, (laughs) Andy. For a start, it would be absolutely sensational if the entire British Empire was actually just an elaborate plan to steal that particular diamond all along. (laughs) The ultimate long con, planning a century-long heist that involved conquering two-thirds of the world's landmass purely as a distraction. It, It actually makes sense when you think about it. Why else would, he, would we have worn such ridiculous costumes? <laughs> Who wears a f***ing pith helmet, Andy, unless they're wanting to distract your eyes from the fact that their hands are stealing India's largest diamond? <laughs> <laughs> and it's even more ballsy to then put that diamond in a crown. <laughs> Most jewel thieves would lie low for a while. Andy, not do anything too flashy to arouse suspicion. Not the British, though. We immediately wore that diamond on a hat. And that is the ultimate f*** you to India. Hey, you want your diamond back, India? You'll have to come and get it from my f***ing head. <laughs> it was, uh, in fact, one of the terms of the Treaty of Lahore, a mm-hmm. legal agreement formalising uh, British occupation of the yeah, Punjab. Just um, formalising. <laughs> which the gem was going to be taken uh, and surrendered to yes. the Queen of England. So, uh, yes. as you say, it's amazing what you can get away with uh, with a smart uniform. But um, India's now claiming that it was taken away illegally, and Britain's response has been, yes, yes, it probably was. Oh, well. <laughs> Mint julep, please buy, and make it snappy. I've got some history to selectively ignore. <laughs> but also, John, this, as you said, this diamond was put in a crown, and the crown worn traditionally by the... Uh, Consort of the monarch. Mm. Uh, now, this was belonged to uh, the Queen Mother, who died in uh, allegedly in two thousand and two. And it's really <laughs> taking the finders keepers rule a little too far. Particularly if the way that you found it was by stealing it via a treaty. And also, <laughs> the Queen Mother's crown, John, dead for over ten years. When you refuse to give back a bit of a dead woman's hat that she hardly ever wore anyway, you need to take a long, hard bath with yourself and think about what really matters to you in life. It's classic children's behaviour. Uh, can we have the diamond back? No, it's mine. Technically, that's not necessarily true. It's mine. Well, you're not using it, so why not let someone else have a go with it? It's mine. Did you pay for it? What? What does that mean? It's mine. Mine, 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 mine. You're right. It's but our, our legal defence for this is basically... Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. And when I say finders, I mean takers. Takers, keepers, losers, weepers. It doesn't rhyme so much, but it makes everything so much easier. Uh, You're you're right. The question posed to uh, David Cameron by the Indians uh, this week was, essentially, wouldn't it be a nice gesture on this goodwill-building visit to just think about maybe giving that diamond back, to which... David Cameron paused, acted like he was thinking about it before responding, Go f*** yourself! (laughs) Uh, Some Indians, including uh, Mahatma Gandhi's grandson, have demanded the diamond's return to atone for Britain's colonial past. Good luck with that! Because if they really want it, Andy, if they really want that diamond, do you know what they should do? (laughs) 
they should try and steal it back. Because <laughs> that would unquestionably instantly be the new world's greatest diamond heist, Andy. <laughs> Stealing that diamond right off the crown in the Tower of London. Are you kidding me, Andy? <laughs> that concept is so incredible. I now think they pretty much have to try it. Because if they pull it off, there is not a single British person that would begrudge them that diamond. Why? Because we'd already be planning how to re-steal it back. <laughs> Maybe they should try and play us at our own game and try and treaty it out of us. You know, <laughs> cheeky, it, cheeky in the small right. print of a trade deal. Just, Just, it wants to surrender. <laughs> Look at it. <laughs> In, in, in explaining why there was no way that India was or is getting that diamond back, David Cameron cleverly, cleverly used a reference of some other stolen goods that uh, Britain <laughs> is perched on at the moment. He said, it's the same question with the Elgin marbles, uh, which are the, you know, the classic Greek statues that Athens would really like back. He said, the right answer is for the British Museum and other cultural institutions to do exactly what they do which is to link up with other institutions around the world to make sure that the things which we have and look after so well are properly shared with people around the world. I certainly don't believe in returnism, as it were. <laughs> I don't think that's sensible. Returnism, Andy. I've, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. The British Museum is essentially an active crime scene. <laughs> Each room in that museum should have yellow police tape across the front of it. <laughs> Returnism as well. I think um, that's not entirely his party's attitude towards people. Clearly they're more keen <laughs> on keeping things than, than people in this country. Well, it's a very inconsistent approach to looting, John. Punitive jail sentences for the, uh, the looters and rioters of a couple of summers ago. But as long as it was done ages ago and it's stuck on the Queen's hat, it's f***ing fine. <laughs> The, the whole the whole point of Cameron's trip was to tap into India's economic rise, and he was anxious to point out that he wants to focus on the present and the future rather than reach back into the past. And that is spoken like a man who knows that to reach too far back into Britain's past risks you getting your hand bitten off. <laughs> That's right. Or at least the path spontaneously vomiting history all over your arm. <laughs> And another reason why they'll never get that diamond back is, as you mentioned, uh, you, know, you've, you wear that if you're the Queen Consort, which means that if Kate Middleton, whose husband is currently second in line to the throne, if she becomes Queen Consort, she will apparently wear the crown holding the diamond on official occasions. And wow, that has got to weigh heavy on your head, that particular <laughs> piece of headwear, Andy. You've got the weight of the anger of over a billion Indians <laughs> glaring at you. It had better look good. On his trip, Cameron also visited uh, Amritsar, uh, the site of um, one of the more notorious glitches in the otherwise smooth sailing of Britain's glorious ship of empire, when the British military opened fire on a crowd of unarmed protesters in a confined space. Uh, now, this happened in 1919, and even by the standards of the time, it was considered bad PR. But Cameron stopped short of apologising for it. He said it was deeply shameful and should never be forgiven, but did not apologise, saying it would not be appropriate, as the killings were, at, at the time, condemned by the UK authorities. Now, this is true, mm -hmm. John, uh, but sorry is not a word that comes easily to British leaders, because once <laughs> yeah. you open those floodgates, you are going to be absolutely deluged by <laughs> other bits of sorry you have to be sorry about. And it's an extraordinary story, uh, this. Um, in 1919, the uh, Brigadier General Reginald Dwyer ordered the yeah. shooting without warning the crowd to disperse and fired for 10 minutes on men, women and children until him and his mm -hmm. men basically ran out of bullets. 
Some oh, were shot, some boy. died jumping into a well to escape the bullets, and some were then just left to die of their wounds overnight because a curfew had been imposed. Uh, the Indians estimate that over a 1,000 were killed, or the official British uh, tally was uh, 379. <laughs> Oh, and at the inv- we, were, we were cartoon villains back then, Andy. Well, One, can- two, three, four, maybe five, six. Oh God, my, my mouth is getting tired from counting. And 379. <laughs> but it gets even more extraordinary. At the Hunter Commission that investigated it afterwards, Dyer explained, I think it quite possible that I could have dispersed the crowd without firing, but they would have come back again and laughed, and I would have made a fool of myself. <laughs> So, oh, God. in no circumstances, oh. saying sorry doesn't seem too much, even at this yeah. distance. I think it. I think that gives real context to make Americans feel better about yeah. what they've done to the world over the last ten years, Andy. Which is, it doesn't even scratch the surface um, of what we were able to do. Furthermore, he stated he did not make any effort to tend the wounded after the shooting, and these are his words: "Certainly not." It was not my job. Hospitals were open and they could have gone there. Oh, my God! Well, is that not one of the problems of being wounded after being shot, that travel to a hospital becomes a logistical issue? Uh, The investigation uh, reported that, continuing to fire as long as he did, it appears that General Dwyer Dyer committed a grave error. So you can see why some Indians think maybe the Britons did not react to this in the way that they could have done. And when he returned home after being relieved of his duties in India, uh, um, a benefit fund was started which raised £26,000 for General Dyer, who was greeted as, quote, the man who saved India. So I really think sorry is not going to break the moral bank on this particular incident. <laughs> yeah, it is amazing that he's become the first serving British Prime Minister to voice regret about the massacre. In uh, in a visitor's notebook at the Pink Granite Memorial in Amritsar, he apparently wrote, this was a deeply shameful event in British history, one that Winston Churchill rightly described at the time as monstrous. And it's a tough spot for a leader to be in, isn't it, Andy, having to sign a visitor's book at the site of a tragedy your country was completely responsible for. <laughs> I actually feel from a little bit there, because what's he supposed to write? Um... Oops, <laughs> love the gift shop. Great trip of a lifetime, David. <laughs> like you say, notably like the Queen before him, he did not think it appropriate to offer up a full apology, a fact that understandably did not go unnoticed by the Indian media. And my favourite commentary on all this, Andy, came from the New York Times, who wrote, echoing what you were saying earlier, Britain's colonial history is so replete with regrettable episodes... <laughs> that officials have quietly worried that an apology for one episode might lead to an outpouring of demands for serious apologies all over the world. And that is just a phenomenal excuse for not apologising, Andy. Look, if we apologise to you, we're going to have to apologise to almost every nation on Earth, and that is just going to be exhausting. It's, It's like a bank being too big to fail, Andy. As an empire, we were just too bad to apologise. Well, sorry is a difficult word, but clearly your welcome seems to trot off the tongue rather more easily because <laughs> Cameron, whilst not being able to say sorry, did say there was 
quote, an enormous amount to be proud of in the British Empire. So this is clearly not a two-sided tennis racket. I don't know if the enormous amount we've got to be proud of includes opening fire on crowds of unarmed locals in confined spaces, or well-executed diamond heists, or even tactically starving millions of people to death by exporting all their food to Britain during a famine, or even by making their farmers grow poppies for opium instead of food for tummies, or other sundry procedural questionables, some of which were questioned pretty stroppily at the time, and answered by the British with a single word, bang. Still, on the flip side, you got cricket. Diamond fact box now. So what exactly is a diamond? Well, in the words of the 60s rockers The Kinks, it's a metastable allotrope of carbon. Oh, yes, it is. (laughs) Oh, yes, it is. (laughs) The diamond, of course, has long been associated with love and marriage, and it has a number of qualities which explain its romantic links. It has strong covalent bonding, symbolic of the unbreakable bond between two lovers. It has very high thermal conductivity, representing the warmth that flows in a loving relationship. It's also notoriously hard all the time, symbolic of the um, early ardour of the first flowerings of a lustful confabulation. It also has relatively high optical dispersion, symbolising how inevitably after a certain amount of time in a marriage or relationship, your eyes start wondering. It's also uh, remarkably durable, as it bloody has to be to put up with 45 years of ceaseless, ceaseless nagging. And it's very dense and impregnable, like the withered husks that remain as you sit opposite each other in a nursing home, silently glowering at each other's time-rattled faces, channeling a lifetime of resentment and hoping that you don't die first to give your other half the satisfaction of muttering one nil, one nil at your funeral. So... All in all, it is the perfect gemstone for marriage. And um, it's interesting to think if history had turned out uh, differently, that's really just through the evolutionary quirk that human beings like sparkly, shiny things. But it could have been very different, John. Uh, It could have been that human beings liked aesthetically muddy, lumpy things and that potatoes were (laughs) what ear of diamonds are today. Do you like my new earrings? Yes, they're lovely. Those Jersey Royals really bring out the colour in your eyes. Kerbling. And what about Brenda's new nose stud? Isn't that great? Brenda? Do you mean Wallace Simpson? Because that King Edward really suits her. Have you noticed anything else I've had pierced? To be honest, yes I have. Are they Russet Burbanks or Belle de Fontenay's? I can't tell under your t-shirt. But they are certainly a feature. Uh, do you want to see the Winston on my Winston? <laughs> and that's all the facts you need to know about diamonds. <laughs> Were you talking about diamonds then? (laughs) I can't remember. It's been a long week. In other crime news, French illegal trouser news now. (laughs) And a world-class sentence. A 200-year-old law forbidding women to wear trousers in Paris has finally been revoked. On a... On January the 31st, uh, France's Minister of uh, Women's Rights made it officially impossible to arrest a woman for wearing trousers in Paris. And that means that for the last two centuries, Andy, any woman in Paris wearing an elegantly tailored pantsuit (laughs) has technically been breaking the law and could have been arrested by not just the fashion police, but the actual police as well, which, having been to Paris, I have to say, could easily function as the same thing. Uh, (laughs) The... uh, 
The law required women to ask police for special permission to dress as men in Paris or risk being taken into custody. In 1892 and 1909, the rule was amended to allow women to wear trousers if, I quote, the woman is holding a bicycle handlebar or the reins of a horse. (laughs) (laughs) That is a magnificent loophole, Andy. No wonder so many chic handbags around that time were shaped like bicycle handlebars with horse reins for handles. Because what an amazing pair of objects to need to remember not to leave the apartment without if you were wearing trousers. Okay, Jean-Luc, let's go. Uh, Let me check. Have I got everything? Uh, Keys, purse, phone. Oh, shit, I nearly forgot my horse reins. Um, I'm wearing trousers tonight and I don't want to have to end up in jail. Actually, be a doll and rip the handlebars off that bicycle over there as well <laughs> just so we're doubly safe but uh, uh, I, went, I went to paris on uh, on honeymoon john and i'm yeah. pretty sure that uh, that my my wife uh, wore some trousers then so that well you should have turned her into the police well you? i just think i was better sitting on that information until i actually need it <laughs> <laughs> that's true that's true. Uh, the law was kept in place until now, despite repeated attempts to repeal it, in part because officials said that uh, you know the, the uh, unenforced rule was not a priority and part of French, I quote, legal archaeology. I'll tell you what else was legal archaeology here in the States, Andy. Slavery. And uh, that was still worth getting rid of. And incidentally, <laughs> Mississippi only officially ratified the 13th Amendment this week, which outlawed <laughs> slavery. This was after a clerical error meant the paperwork was not filed when they finally voted to ratify the amendment way back in 1995. <laughs> <laughs> Just a century and a half late. They really wanted to be sure, I guess, Andy, that it was the right move for America. Yeah, you just don't want to jump into these things two-footed and then regress yeah. it later when it all turns it, out wrong. It actually happened after two men in Mississippi were inspired to check on the status of the amendment in their state after watching the movie Lincoln. (laughs) So Mississippi was inspired by the movie Lincoln, Andy, not the actual Lincoln. (laughs) They they just didn't find him convincing enough at the time. They preferred the fake Lincoln years later instead, the British guy pretending to be Lincoln who was backed by a John Williams soundtrack whenever he opened his mouth. (laughs) Maybe that's the problem with Lincoln at the time. He just lacked uh, lacked a bit of quality music behind him. Of course. Everyone's more impressive with a soundtrack. And to be fair to Mississippi, Andy, I think the main reason they took so long to ratify the 13th Amendment is that they just like coming last in things, (laughs) whether it's education, race relations or body mass indexes. There's no sturdier place than the foot of the table, Andy. I believe that's their state motto, except I believe their state motto actually ends with the N-word as well. Uh, In other crime news now, Icelandic names. And uh, a 15-year-old Icelandic girl, Andy, has won the right uh, to use the name given her by her mother (laughs) after a court battle against the authorities. So she's escaped... Presumably the death penalty, Andy. Yeah, I think that's what, so. yeah. I think the Icelandics go pretty hard <laughs> on... Uh, basically, her name, her name, Blair Bjandra, will, will, now, will now be able to use her first name, which means Light Breeze, officially. And the reason this was a problem is that the country, Iceland, has very strict laws on names which must fit Icelandic grammar and pronunciation rules. Uh, Blair said after the ruling, I'm glad that this is over, 
Now I expect I'll have to get a new, some new identity papers. Finally, I'll have the name Blair <laughs> in my passport. And uh, yeah, like Germany and Denmark, Iceland has extremely rigid limitations on how a baby can be named. Names like uh, you know Carolina and Krista, uh, for example, are outlawed because the letter C is not part of Iceland's alphabet. Names are not allowed to be unisex either, and that's you know that's. Pretty strict, yep. Andy. Especially now, you know, around the world, people are choosing to name their children after fruits, vegetables, and spare <laughs> car parts. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this. I mean, if this kind of legislation comes in in America, it's going to completely destroy American football <laughs> as a sport. <laughs> Other names not allowed in Iceland for being insufficiently feminine include snout hammer, pull my finger, and missile defence system. But um, her mother. <laughs> but also, her mother's name, John. Her mother's yeah. name was Bjork. Which, <laughs> Well, how feminine! That sounds like a vomiting dog, or possibly <laughs> slang. Oh dear, Derek Jeter's gone down hard there. It looks like he's uh, cupped a nasty one right in his Bjorks. <laughs> there are there are apparently one thousand eight hundred and fifty three officially approved female names on the Icelandic naming committee's list, uh, and uh, yeah, Bjork. Said uh, she had no idea that Blair was not on the list of accepted <laughs> names. And as you mentioned, the the panel rejected the name because they said it was too masculine for a girl. What? Hold on. The name Light Breeze is too masculine. I don't know if that argument would hold up in most international courts. And here's, here's the crazy thing, Andy. They're, they're missing the much bigger point here. Icelandic names are already ridiculous. What, what are they frightened of? There's nothing they can come up with that's more silly than names they've already got. Like Arinbjorn, Arminfanur, Bergilot, Ragnar and Flurg. Now, if, if you want everyone to have serious names, stop giving your children names that make them sound like IKEA shelving units. Oh, not nice to meet you, Dagstorp. Now, what do you do? Are you a full-time wardrobe? <laughs> also, reading this story, Sri Lanka must be laughing its head off, John. They have names <laughs> like novels. Well, There's also a little-known aspect to the Conservative manifesto at the last election. Um, they'd seen a possible hung parliament coming, uh, and... Um, thought they might have to negotiate a coalition agreement. So in their uh, manifesto were various laws that they never intended to pursue, but they used as bargaining chips, including a, passing a law so that only four names were allowed for all British children, and these names were Brian, <laughs> Enid, Sopwith and Mork. Because um, uh, George Osborne's a massive Mork and Mindy fan. Massive. Yeah. As his tattoos will testify. Uh, so it came to the negotiations... And uh, the Conservatives dropped their names demand and the Liberal Democrats gave up their commitment to not charging university tuition fees. Bit of give and take. So it worked out for everyone. In New Zealand, someone mm-hmm. was banned from naming their child Sex Fruit. Really? really? Yeah. Sex Fruit was... Con- they, have, they have a committee as well. There was a, Sex Fruit not allowed. There was an Adolf Hitler case as well, wasn't there? Some who, would, who would not want to name their child that? Yeah. Sadly, that name was not... <laughs> was not a hundred years ago in Australia. In Austria. <laughs> or Australia. But anyway, here's a tip, Iceland. Spend a little bit less time worrying about what people call their children and a little bit more time stopping your entire banking sector collapsing like a watermelon in a nuclear test zone. <laughs> your emails now, and this one comes in from Oshin, who writes, Dear John, Chris and Andy, in order of who gives a shit... <laughs> 
about what? Uh, me and the wife drove down to Florida a few weeks ago and spotted this precious gem on a highway billboard. A picture of US Army tanks, strike helicopters and soldiers coming right at you, set in a lovely background which appears to be bursting volcanoes, explosions and hellfire. And, in the middle of it all, with his arms outstretched, looking like a cheap redneck actor dressed up like a Jedi. You guessed it. <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> wow. <laughs> Seems we know... What he's been up to these last 2,000 years. Yeah. Building an army and such. I see he's been making particular use of his mind control powers mentioned in Deuteronomy 23.1. The top of the billboard reads, I'm still in control, dot, 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 Jesus. I'm not sure they really needed the dot, 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 but for the sake of dramatics, I still think it fits the mood rather well. Underneath that reads, wait for it, www.iwillbeback.org. It's... <laughs> It seems only probably like, sh- like Jesus in the Terminator. <laughs> well, that's pretty much how my team views him <laughs> in terms of market share. <laughs> so, thanks very much for sharing with us, uh, Oshin. Thanks, thanks very much. That's an extraordinary. Uh, also, I do wonder if that's true. Uh, anytime you hear anyone saying "I'm still in control," it usually means they have completely lost control. So, I think that's what Gaddafi said, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, whilst exactly. he was being turned into a human kebab. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do keep your emails coming into info at thebuglepodcast.com and do check out the SoundCloud page, uh, soundcloud.com slash the hyphen bugle. And don't forget, if you have not voluntarily subscribed yet on thebuglepodcast.com, please do so to keep this podcast free and independent and alive. Three things that I think we all hold extremely dear to our hearts. <laughs> um, and otherwise, I'm going to have some pretty f***ing empty weeks. So um, that's it, Buglers, until, uh, until Bugle226 next week. Goodbye. And if you see any diamonds, just help your f***ing self. It's the British and Belgian word. Bye! Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. In this series, we discuss line bikes, Teslas, the London Overground, and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you, you, you must be so excited. Listen now.